If you can take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. We are in Luke 9 again this morning, and this morning we will read Luke 9 verses 51 to 56. This is following up the passage from last Sunday as Jesus taught his disciples on what discipleship was. So Luke 9, starting in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give great grace to all in this room, all listening uh, over the um, internet, to to hear your word with ears ready to heed, that we would look at the, the posture your son has as he goes to Jerusalem for his final destination and his death and burial and resurrection and also his ascension and see with what resolve he goes. Thank you that he is determined to complete his mission and finish his course and help us understand the great benefit of our salvation, the assurance of our salvation, all wrapped up in his own will to complete his course. We, all, we pray this all in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, as I said last week, we looked at 9 verses 46 to 50 as we looked at the, the nature of discipleship. What, what is discipleship? What does it look like? What is, what is it? What it is not? What is it not? And we said that discipleship was mimicking the way in which our Lord came in his incarnation. Discipleship is not about infighting and competition with one another. Christian discipleship is not about uh, being an elitist and finding out you're better than someone else. And discipleship is not about exalting ourselves, but serving each other. And Jesus makes those points very clearly to his disciples for our benefit. And the passage continues in Luke here. As Jesus heads to Jerusalem, 951 is a turning point in the Gospel of Luke. From 951 to 1928, Jesus is heading straight towards Jerusalem, and he's encountering various uh, opposition. Some were glad to see him. Some were healed by some miracles. But that, that ministry of his was, was done and gone. Now he would increasingly become more and more um, 
his enemies would become more and more hostile to him. So when it says, when the days drew near, Luke is basically putting a time stamp there saying, this is the point in which his ministry turns and hinges. And it says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so I have titled this sermon, The Saving Determination of Our Lord. With what will, with what resolve, did Jesus Christ take up your salvation? With what earnestness, with what um, seriousness did Jesus go about saving you? Did he go about his earthly ministry unaware and unsure of his task? Did he come without a consciousness of his Messiahship? Did he know he was the Messiah? Did he know his mission? Did he know what he came to do? He came fully aware, fully aware of who he is and what he came to do and why he was sent. Did he come with a thought of just wishing or hoping he would accomplish his mission? No. He came with God's divine resolve to complete his mission. To save. When Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, it is the God-man, Jesus Christ, of course, truly God, truly man, but with all purpose, determination, resolve, and earnestness to do his mission. Can the Almighty try something and fail? So Christ, sent to earth, born of a virgin, raised up in obedience to the law, and he's, 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 comp- he's doing his earthly ministry, and now he knows the days are drawing near for him to lay his life dying, down for his people with complete mockery, with complete surrender on his part, hostility on his enemy's part, to do his task. And in fact, providentially, we just read this. Jeremiah did for us in Isaiah 50. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. When Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, as Isaiah 57 says, He sets his face like flint. It is a determination. But it's not just an an earthly human determination. He will complete his course. He will succeed in the matter for which he was sent. So, we have this before us as a great assurance. How did Christ come? And save sinners. Did he just walk along willy-nilly, not sure where he would go next? No. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly, exactly who he was facing. And he came with the utmost resolve 
of the divine will. And when God determines to do something, God succeeds. We said it earlier in our Sunday school hour that our life is not defined by a single event that we have, that we experience, right? Instead, our life is defined by a different event. All of my life, my eternal life, my eternal security, everything about me, about the sinner, is defined by what did Christ accomplish? What did he come to do and did he accomplish it? And the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ is the one defining moment, one defining event for all humanity on whether they would accept that and fall, or excuse me, accept that and live or, or deny it and fall. And here we see a wonderful, wonderful passage where our assurance of salvation, our assurance of Christ's love for us, our assurance of will he accept us, hangs not on our response to him, but on Jesus. Does he succeed? Does he succeed? Now, of course, you know the end of the story, and he does triumphantly succeed. But here, Luke shows he is the word of God sent, and he will succeed in his mission. So, to break this down a little bit here, First off, let's see that Christ's saving determination overcomes great suffering. You see that in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. So first off, before we get to Jerusalem where he would receive all this great suffering, he, the days are drawing near for him to be taken up. To be taken up. Luke is referring to something in his gospel and in the book of Acts that he wrote that is crucial, crucial to the gospel account. And it's not taking up to Jerusalem. It's taking up to be back at his father's side. When he speaks, Luke, of the days drawing near to be him, for Christ to be taken up again, he's talking about Jesus returning back to the father and being the ascended Lord, who he has been from all eternity. So Luke is thinking, history revolves around the ascension. But, but not just the ascension. We, kinda, we would just be best to package the death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension all in one big momentous event, right? It's not just the cross. It's not just the resurrection. It's not just the death. It's not just the burial. It's all of it together as one triumphant display of God's power over sin. So when the days draw near him to be taken up, he is presenting Luke, excuse me, Luke is presenting Christ as the perfect pilgrim in the Song of Ascents, who every year Jerusalemites, Israelites would come and pilgrim to Jerusalem, and they would climb up to Jerusalem, and they would sing the Song of Ascents, the, the numerous psalms in the Psalter, and here, Jesus is that perfect ascending pilgrim who goes back to his father knowing his mission is at hand and is about to be fulfilled. And we often, we often talk about a um, cross-centered life, you know. Um, I don't hear much about an ascended-centered life. <laughs> but the ascension is everything. 
we are raised with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places. We are with Christ. Because he ascended, he sends the Spirit. Because he has ascended, we are reborn. Because he's ascended, exalted Lord of all, he actually gives good gifts to the church to build the church up. Because he's ascended, all of that happens. And we cannot you know, separate that from the, the one event of his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension. But this, this is an important um, moment in his ministry. Prior to this ministry, from, from chapter 4 of Luke to 951, he's been exercising his ministry primarily in Galilee. And his ministry has been one of signs and wonders. He has done multiple, multiple healings. So much so that Luke says, in, in, in numerous places, all who came to him were healed. All. What's all mean? All. All people, all kinds of people. All of them were healed. Even the mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law. He healed all. And so he's, he's casting out demons. And his, a, a quick um, tangent, his, his kingdom is, is defined by light, power, and mercy. By teaching, by light, by power over the, of the sicknesses and, and the demons, and by mercy, by having compassion on those. Light, power, and mercy. That's his kingdom that he is, that he is preaching, right? That's, that's the message that he preached to, to the people in Nazareth who wanted to throw him off the cliff because they thought there's no way this message is going to those dirty Gentiles. But this is what Jesus has been about in Galilee. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And from 951 on, you can count on your one hand how many miracles he does. It's no longer a miraculous ministry, but a teaching ministry. And he is confronting the leaven of the Pharisees. He is confronting the false teachers and the false gospel that the Sadducees and Pharisees owned and propagated. And so because he's doing that, conflict and opposition growing and growing and growing between him and those who hate grace. So this is a turning point in his, in his ministry and it is to Jerusalem that he goes. And, of course, what is waiting for him in Jerusalem? Yeah, there are a few cries of Hosanna. Um, but by and large, what is waiting for him? But mockery, scorn, contempt, beating, and death. Hostility. That's what's waiting for him. And he goes to Jerusalem knowing that's waiting for him. Knowing it's waiting for him. The suffering is coming, but he doesn't, doesn't go off course. It doesn't dissuade him from going off course or from pursuing his mission. He actually stays the course because that is his mission. So he knows Jerusalem is where he's going. He knows suffering is coming. He is seeing the threats Early, early on in the Gospels, they conspire to destroy Jesus. He knows what's waiting for him. But despite the great suffering, despite the pain, we get a little bit of pain 
try to run a mile. Ooh, I'll stop. I'm, I'm walking the rest or whatever. No, despite the pain, he presses on and on and on, and he completes his course. And in a wonderfully uh, imaginative and yet I think biblically faithful way, this is how John Flavel, a Puritan, described this resolve that Christ had in a conversation between the Father and the Son. The Father says, My son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The son says, Oh, my father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than that they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring all your bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand you will require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than they suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. The father replies, but my son, if you undertake for them, you must pay the last penny. Expect no discounts. If I spare them, I will not spare you. Son, I am willing, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all to me. I am able to pay their debt. And though it will be undoing to me, though it will impoverish all my riches and empty all my accounts, yet I am content to undertake it. A bit of sanctified imagination, but nevertheless, you see there what Flavel's trying to paint. The son wants to die for his people. He wants to die for his people. It's not a thought. There's no regret. There's no remorse. There's even, even at the hands of dying for his people, he's saying, forgive them. They do not know what they do. There's no regret in the heart of Christ for suffering for his people. He does it gladly. He does it for the joy set before him. He does it to bring you into his joy. And, and is this great resolve that Jesus overcame the suffering that he would face and save us from our sin? He didn't flee the mission after he realized it would be painful. No, he was determined. He was determined to save, determined to go. He would not be thwarted. He would not be thwarted. So this great determination to save overcomes great suffering. It also overcomes opposition. And look at how Look at how this account reads out. So in 51, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Verse 52, he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. They didn't receive 
him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So he goes into a village. Well, before he goes into the village, he says, messengers, why don't you go on ahead and ready them? So basically, he turns his messenger, he turns his disciples into some, like, they're booking hotels, okay? They're, they're getting lodging, like, they're, they got a crowd of people with them. And he says, this, this poor little town needs to know all these people are coming, okay? And so he sends them on ahead and says, like, we, we got a grip of people, uh, Christ is coming, <laughs> and so we're going we're gonna to overwhelm you. <laughs> But, but in addition to make, making practical preparations for them, he's also readying the town for Jesus' arrival. Okay? He's readying the town for Jesus' arrival and, and any ministry he would do there. So he turns his messengers into little John the Baptist. John the Baptist is dead. He's long gone, head severed off. He's dead. But his disciples, his followers, he says, you're going to go before me, just like John the Baptist did, and prepare the way. Prepare this town, prepare the next town and the next town so that when we're there, pragmatically, we have preparations and lodging for us, but also when I, when I preach, when I would do, when I would do ministry, when I, would make, when I would do miracles, they would know who exactly is in their midst. So he, he does this, but the people don't receive him. The people don't receive him. Why? They're Samaritans. They have no dealings with Jews. And Jews have no dealings with them. The Samaritans and the Jews have been fighting over what is the proper place of worship for millennia, <laughs> hundreds of years. Mount Gerizim, Mount Zion. Jerusalem or in Samaria. And, and they would have nothing to do with Jesus. They opposed him. They opposed him. And, and this, this deep-seated hostility to, for Christ is a perfect example of humankind's opposition to God. That we were, that we were all born in sin. That we all hate God. That we all have enmity with God. We're friends with the world, enmity with God. We don't want God. In, in, our, in our sinful state, we wouldn't choose him if we could. We don't want him. We'd rather have other things. Would I quickly choose a Lord over my life than me? No. I want to be in control. So, so the Samaritans and the Jews, and this interaction is interesting it is a perfect illustration of mankind's hostility and opposition towards God. God is the initiator, the giver of good news, the bringer of the gospel. And we don't want it. It says, they did not receive him because his face was set to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. He's not going to Mount Gerizim. And the Samaritans say, we'll have nothing with you. We, have, we want nothing to do with you. And, and yet he was still determined to, to not light them up and call down fire and destroy them, but mercifully, mercifully 
engage with them. Some chapters later from now, you have a classic illustration of of mercy, of ten lepers, one Lord, and and one, one believing Samaritan leper. He comes into the town. This is Luke 17. And lepers are crying out, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. And he heals them all. Jesus' mercy is not restrained to Jews alone. He heals all ten lepers. And, and there's other acts of kindness, of course, but in, just in this one account, all ten lepers come to him. And they say, heal us, son of David, heal us, heal us, have mercy on us. And what does he do? Go to the temple, you're healed. And they go, and they're happy, and one, one, one turns back. One turns back and gives glory to God. And Jesus' mercy was not restrained by any ethnicity. He would happily have them. They would not have him. We would not have him. That, that, that is where we live prior to Christ in an unregenerate, non-saved state. God would have us, but we wouldn't have him. We would kick him out of our schools, homes, and hearts as long as we maintain authority, as long as we are Lord over our lives. His mercy is wide. His mercy is, is pure and large, but we refuse him. And yet, such obstinate, recalcitrant behavior Jesus is not put off by. If he was, no one would be saved. How many times does the gospel come, or did the gospel come to you before you said, yes, Lord? Time and time and time and time again. The Lord would tell Israel, is my hand so short I cannot save? I've held out my hand all day long all day long, to a stubborn and rebellious people. And they would not have me, though I would have them. That, that is the heart of Christ, the heart of God. And so he, even though he would go there, and even though he was determined to go, he was not put off by them. And even, even better, now, as, as we can read this as, as Christians, how much more is he willing to receive us now that we are actually his brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the Most High? No, he is, he is resolved to buy his people back from bondage. He is resolved to redeem them. He is resolved to love his enemies, though he gets nothing good in return. Praise the Lord for that. Some might say, oh, Christ is a gentleman. Uh, he would never, never impose his will on me. He, he would knock at the door and see if I answer. No, no. Praise the Lord, he is not such a gentleman. Praise the Lord, he actually overwhelms our will, stubborn, rebellious, sinful will, with his kind and gracious 
determination. You do not know what you do. Praise the Lord for that. So Christ's saving determination, it, it overcomes great pain, great suffering. It overcomes opposition. It also overcomes the disciples' error. There are many times in which Christ could be uh, tempted to go off course and not go to Jerusalem. Just in this very passage, even by people whom he loves, aren't we not easily tempted to go with those who we love and be influenced by them and say, yeah, maybe that's the, maybe that's the wrong course. I'll, I think you're right. So look, look what happened. So the people did not receive him, verse 53, his, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Spot on, James and John. That's right. What I, that's what, you guessed it right. No, no, you failed the test here. Um, but he turned and rebuked them. It is time and time again, we ought to be appreciated that Christ's will cannot be thwarted. Sometimes we're too caught up about my own will. Is it free? Is it bound or whatever? God's will cannot be, cannot be defeated. And if he is a, not if, since he is a good God and he is determined to save, praise the Lord that he overwhelms, defeats, beats back our stubborn sinful will with his kindness and frees us to follow him. But even though that happens, we still get the wrong answers. (laughs) So James and John Sons of Zebedee and Sons of Thunder. One of the accounts why they got that title. Sons of Thunder. James and John were raw in Christ's school. They were raw, green, harsh, and heavy-handed men. And so they say, oh, I get it. We just saw Jesus transfigured with Moses and Elijah. Elijah called down fire on those prophets of Baal or Baal. Let's do the same. Light them up. And so in a sense, they're, wow, James and John, you you have some faith to think you could do such a power. But obviously, they're, they're completely misguided completely wrong. And, and, and Jesus' kingdom won't be won by fire from heaven or cutting ears off. But it will come by self-denial and self-sacrifice by Christ himself. And so there, there might be something to commend James and John. They were, they were the sons of thunder and they were, they were zealous for the Lord. They, they wanted, how dare you offend my Lord? Right? They took up an offense for Christ, and they said, no way. No, we're going to get those Samaritans. They got a thing coming ever since, you know, millennia ago. No. And so Jesus, in his determination to save, he even sees his, his disciples and says, guys, nah, nah, you're, not, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. And Christ's 
instruction to them, he turns and he rebukes them. He corrects them. How effective was this rebuke? How effective was this instruction to say that is not the way? Some of your Bibles may have in the margin, uh, you know not what manner of spirit you are. Um, They were not of the meek and lowly and gentleness of Christ's spirit. They were of the zealot spirit, the we want earthly kingdom now spirit. We want our troubles to go away now kind of spirit. They were of the spirit of we want to do great things for God even if that means killing people. There's a world of difference between dying for your religion and killing in the name of your religion. And they were ready to kill. (laughs) They were ready to kill. So they were green. They were very raw. And Jesus' instruction over time with this rebuke and many others would sanctify them. And it would sanctify and purify their passion and their zeal to do quite the opposite. Instead of, instead of calling down fire on the Samaritans to consume them, James would gladly be killed at the hands of Herod and Acts. John, exiled, the island of Patmos, burned in oil, suffering horrendous treatment, and exiled. That's what the instruction of Christ does. That's what Christ's words do. They go down deep into our hearts where we are black and dark and sinful and he purifies us with his own fire, with his own spirit. He would not be dissuaded from his course, but as he goes along his course, he would sanctify those who come with him and bring his friends, his cousins and friends along and say, if you're going to follow me, this is, this is who I am. I'm not, I'm not coming to judge and come down with fire right now. My, my advent, this coming, is about me dying for the sins of the world for my enemies and instructing them in righteousness, instructing them in mercy. We can't, we can't mess up his plans. We can't mess up Jesus' plans. You ever thought, well, if, if I make this decision, maybe God will be unhappy with me. Or make this decision. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm messing up his plans. Maybe I counseled someone. I, I can tell you how often I've thought, I, I don't know if I gave that person the right counsel. God's will reigns. Now, God will reign, and he does reign, but his will, his way, his precepts reign and rule. And we cannot thwart that. 
When Christ sets his face to go to Jerusalem, he won't be taken off course by pain. He won't be taken off course by relational hostility. And he won't even be taken off course by people he, whom he loves. Sometimes a very, very difficult thing for us to uh, ignore or discern. He will complete his course. He will die for his people. And he will return and be taken up to his father. He is so resolute. Can the Almighty try something and fail? Can the Omnipotent One attempt something and fail? No. He determined to save you and I, and he did it. He did it. Isaiah 55.10 says, so shall, by, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in a thing for which I sent it. That is no doubt talking about God's own prophetic word to restore Israel and his people again. But how much even more clear do we see Jesus is that word sent by the Father and he will succeed in the matter for which he was sent. He was sent by the Father to die for sin, to be buried, to rise, and to ascend back to the Father. And he did it. And all of our life is about living in light of that one single moment. As Paul would say, it was the first message I preached back here in June. He loved me, Galatians 2.20, he loved me and he gave himself up for me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. So, Jesus Christ, the perfect word, most assuredly, wins the day, succeeds in the manner for which he was sent. And in response to this event, faith says, yes. Faith says, yes, completely. I'll, I'll hang my life on that. That is me. That is what I need. That's all I have. My life hangs in balance between whether Jesus dies or gives into temptation. My life, your life, hangs at the balance of did he die for sin or did he not? And nothing else matters. Because we are only living as an implication of the success of his mission. We live in that single event, the, the cross event, the resurrection and the ascension event. And we can be further comforted that this resolve that Christ had is also shared by the Father and the Spirit. That they are not divided. But the Father, who loved sinners from eternity, sent the Son, who voluntarily and obediently went along with the Father's will, with his same will, and then they both, the Father and Son, sent the Spirit who also has the same will to sanctify you. So if we, are, if we are concerned, oh, okay, great. Thank you that Jesus' will won the day back then, but what does it help me now? The same determination, determination will that won your salvation 
The same Spirit of Christ that did that lives inside the believer to sanctify you. We talked about affliction from the Psalms earlier. Would the Lord give up on his people? Of course not. Would the Lord use every affliction possible to sanctify his people? Of course he would. The same Lord who died on the cross, his spirit lives in us to determinatively sanctify you and bring you home to final salvation. And yes, we, we walk along with that in step with the Spirit, but thank the Lord. Praise the Lord that it is His divine will carrying me to glory and not my own. Because had it been my own, I would have bailed years ago. But Christ, living in us, sets our face to glory and we march Along. Sometimes we limp along, but we progress because Christ dwells in us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we have no other hope other than your free will to save sinners from sin. And we thank you that you have done so through the incarnation and ascension of Jesus Christ, who lived the life in obedience to your law in our place and who also died the death that I should have died in my place to save us from sin, to, to establish us in righteousness and in perfect communion with you. We pray this in Christ's Beautiful name. Amen.